Hey, good morning. Wonderful to be here with you. If we haven't met, my name is Kyle. I'm the lead pastor here, and we are in a series called 90. And the reason we're doing this series, if you missed last week, which we started in kind of hot last week, I both apologize and don't apologize for that. But the reason we're doing this is as people go into a new year, it's 2024, and people, one of the things that people often do is they go, I want to have a better relationship with God. And rather than introduce a bunch of spiritual disciplines, we wanted to talk about the formative person of all of human history, which is Jesus Christ. And so we wanted to spend each month asking a different question and answering that question. So during this month, we wanted to ask the question, what did people say about Jesus in scripture, in your own lives and culture and stuff like that? And today is kind of an interesting one because this is what we're going to talk about. Jesus was called a friend of sinners. We can put that up there. The title of this message is Jesus, friend of sinners. Now, I also want to say I'm super glad that many of you are my friends because I am a sinner as well. Uh, In fact, I discovered this last week when someone gave me a gift. And so what happens is we, we had Christmas time, and then we take a pause. We do something called uh, Appreciation Sunday for our volunteers. And so we're off for about a week. And this wonderful person named E, who I spoke with this morning, gave me a gift. And I want to show you what that gift is. She gave me a gift. It's a Raiders hat. And she said, stop hating on them. And I thought, what a Christ-like thing to do, you know, to to be a friend of a sinner like me. And so I appreciate that. And I've had to repent a few times. And I promise I won't talk about the Raiders anymore, mostly because you're not in the playoffs. There's no point. (laughs) Too soon? Too soon? I do really appreciate it, E. And I really appreciate that even though I have been so terrible to Raiders fans everywhere, you have given an olive branch. So thank you so much. So we are talking about Jesus, a friend of sinners. And it, it's, it's an interesting, I know it's kind of a funny thing, but it's, it's hopefully, you know, just a small microcosm that Jesus would try to bridge a gap between people that maybe have some differences, even if it's as, you know, lame as a football team. So we asked this question, what did people say about Jesus? What did people say about Jesus? And today, again, we're going to be talking about that Jesus was called a friend of sinners, a friend of sinners. Now, on the surface, you don't think that that might not be a big deal, but it was. And I'm hoping to prove that to you today, or at least engage with you on why him being a friend of sinners was not only a big deal then, but continues to be a big big deal today. So one of the ways that we're going to get there is we're going to look at Matthew 11. So Jesus is called a friend of sinners. He's called a couple different things. And he starts to comment on this generation. He's, he's talking about his present generation, but also is kind of peeking into the future of all generations. And he says this. He says, to what should I compare this generation, Jesus says. He said, it's like children. Anytime someone calls you a child, you know you're not in for a good lecture, right? He said, it's like children sitting in the marketplace who call out to each other. So he's using this analogy or this metaphor of kids playing in a marketplace, a public place. It says, we played the flute for you, but you did not dance. And we sang a lament, but you did not mourn. And you're like, what does this little poetry have to do with Jesus being commented on as a friend of sinners or his identity? And Jesus explains it a little bit, and I'll try to unpack it a little bit. He says, you know, for John, John the Baptist, John was the forerunner of Jesus. He came helping people understand that he was not the greatest, that Jesus would be the greatest. And Both of them had things that were said about them in public and in private. Both John and Jesus were public figures, and they were very well aware of what people would say about them. Some people really liked them. Some people really didn't. So Jesus comments about John, another public figure at the time. 
He says, for John came neither eating nor drinking. And so right, right before John uh, is born, you know, the angel of the Lord says, hey, he'll never partake in alcohol. He's got some, he's got some things he's going to do for me. The Holy Spirit will be within him. John is called the best out of every person who has ever lived by Jesus, which is high praise. And he says, so this guy, he didn't eat, he didn't drink. He wasn't a public spectacle in terms of being drunk. And you guys said he has a demon. And on the son of man, Jesus' favorite title for himself, which we'll get into in about a month from now, came eating, and Jesus acknowledges, like, I partake in alcohol. I drink wine. I came eating. And you call him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners, which is interesting because there's a whole category that's worse than sinners, right? You're like, I'm fine if I'm a sinner. At least I'm not a tax collector. You know, it's so bad. That's how bad they were. He says, look, you call me a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of of tax collectors and sinners. Like all the words in this sentence are disparaging. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. He's like, you'll find out someday why I have done this. Now, what's the whole thing about Jesus saying, we played a tune for you. You didn't dance. We played a song. He basically is saying, John and I did not march to the tune of the religious people's expectations. That's essentially what he's saying. Because the religious elite people weren't exactly opposed to wandering prophets, especially if they came from God. I mean, they had the Old Testament scriptures, and they knew that sometimes God used people in very specific, unique, supernatural ways to get a point across. But when John and Jesus came on the scene, they were not the kind of prophets that the religious elite people were used to. And so they thought, man, if Jesus and John are really prophets and they're really from God, we should know what to expect from them. But they didn't. Jesus and John, especially Jesus, because that's who we're talking about, they played to their own tune, you know, to extend the analogy forward. They were not the type of people that the religious elite people thought. They blew out their expectations. Now, in terms of tax collectors and sinners, let me ask this question. Why would it be, why would it be controversial to be associated with sinners and tax collectors? Now, it's hard for us to wrap our brain, and I'm going to try to help us in just a second wrap our brain about how important this was. But why would it be so controversial? I mean, most people in the world, and I can say even expectations from my own family, from my friends and my um, extended family, they see people who follow God as people who should reach out to sinners. Or maybe they just don't even like the word. Maybe they're like, you should reach out to the less fortunate. You should be kind to people who do not believe what you are. There's an expectation that Christians reach out to people who do not have their beliefs, or maybe even people we may judge their lifestyle or their beliefs. There's an expectation there. So why would it be controversial that his association with tax collectors and sinners made so many people mad. I'm going to give you two in a couple points. The first one is that Jesus wasn't called a helper of sinners. He was called a friend of sinners. And those two are vastly different. It's one thing to give someone a meal. It's a very different thing to participate in a meal with them. And I've said this in various messages, and people probably don't believe me when I say this, but having a meal with someone was as intimate as sexual intercourse during that time. It was inviting someone over to your home, sharing bread, sharing a meal. It was so intimate that it was kind of on par with something that two married people would do with one another. It's, so, it's such a big deal to them and their culture There's a great book called A Meal with Jesus. It's a very, very small book. And the author makes the premise in this book that Jesus was either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. And so some people think Jesus was fat. I don't think so, but he wasn't. 
But part of it is, is that like the premise of that book and the premise of how intimate a meal was with other people is that Jesus spent the most intimate parts of his life with the people that he wanted to be friends with. He wanted to be their friend, not just their helper. And Christians often are seen as helper. We can write checks, we can give a meal, we can give volunteer hours, and that's good. But maybe what Jesus is calling all of us to is more than that. To sit with someone and have a meal and to buy them a meal are not on the same page. Number two, Jesus didn't just help sinners, which would have kept him above them. He associated himself with them, which put him next to them. That's, you know, these, all three of these points are basically a reiteration of the same point. Is that Jesus didn't just want to keep people far away from him who had need. He didn't just want to say, hey, here's a sandwich. Or, hey, let me just heal you and just let me peace out. Hey, don't bother me. He often asked them, what do you want me to do for you? He went with people. He sat and ate with them. Now, to put this into context... If Christians really believe that Jesus is the centerpiece of the world, and if his time and if his effort was so valuable that he would take time out of his mission, or you could arguably say this was his mission, is that he came into the world and he says, I've got to die for the sins of the world. I, I must be crucified. I am going to be ridiculed. I'm going to be tortured. And then I'm going to rise again. He, he knew what his mission was. But instead of rushing off to do that, he, he spent his time next to the people in society that everyone else would say, I'll help you, but I'm going to do it from above you because I am above you. I mean, that's kind of what the, the religious people in, in, the, in the society were, were kind of looked at. Like, you're above us. We don't want to take too much of your time. And Jesus is like, that's exactly what I'm here for. Number three, Jesus chose to be someone, to be with someone who was marginalized rather than to be known for something and be notarized. And this was a big deal too, because traveling prophets like Jesus and like John they would get invited places. And we're going to look at one story like that in just a second. They would get invited places and they would be placed at places of honor within a dinner table at a Pharisee's house or they would be welcomed into the synagogue and they would say, hey, teacher, you, why don't you teach today? And crowds would come out. But rather than Jesus saying, hey, will you just come and listen to what I'm saying? He chose to be with the marginalized in our society. Now, you and I, don't really know what this is like. We don't. Our culture is different. And so as I was doing research for this message, I tried to find the most offensive and charged way to describe this. And even along the way, I was like, I'm offended by this. Because we don't really have a lot of people in our society who are willing to do this. So I'm going to give you some examples. And if you have a visceral reaction to what I'm about to say, that's the right, that's the right attitude. So you and I don't have sinners and tax collectors in our life that we go, I can't believe those people would eat with them. Well, we do. They just have different names. I'm going to give you a few examples. You know, I'm from California. Again, hold the booze, please. But I know a lot of people who are from California, one of the reasons people leave is because of the homeless epidemic. And at one point, there was a thought that homeless people need our help. And now it's turned, if you've noticed, that homeless people are ruining our cities and our streets. And there's been kind of a change where people have said, don't help them, don't, don't, I don't want them to stay because they're ruining my property values and they're ruining my neighborhood and they're taking over everything. But imagine you had those people over at your house. You said, hey, pick up your tent, why don't you come in? You can stay as long as you want. 
I know you are seen one way in society, but why don't you come in? Some people would judge you harshly. They'd be like, don't help them, move them. It's fair. You know, we, we, have, we partner with several really great organizations. One of them is Life Choices. And if you don't know, Life Choices is a way of combating something that we're very passionate about as a church and as people. Is it to give life to infants who may not have that choice? And this is a very polarizing topic. And Jesus was a very polarizing person. And so we partner with this organization, and their hope is to give mothers who are pregnant a choice, a way to give that child life. Now, if you're a Christian and you watch the news, you have been conditioned that the people who are at Planned Parenthood and who work there and who are doctors there, that they're the enemy. But imagine people from Life Choices or people from our church going to a Planned Parenthood and say, hey, do you want to come over for dinner? Do you want to be with me? Hey, can I have lunch with you? Hey, can I hear about you and your family? Some people would say you should never meet with them. They are the enemy. Don't talk with them. Do you realize what they are doing? Another great organization that we partner with is an organization called Awaken, which helps people out of sex trafficking and prostitution. Imagine one day someone from Awaken or someone from here or just a Christian in general found a sex trafficker who is known or a person who has molested children. And they say, why don't you come over to my house for dinner? Different reaction, right? Most of you are like, never, never that. That's the reaction Jesus had with people. He took the people in life that everyone else said, those are terrible people. You should never interact with them. There's no good in them. And he saw them as being made in the image of God. Now, the difference here, the difference is, is that Jesus never went to them and say, you're morally okay. He never did that. He invited them into his life. He invited them to be more like him. And he changed them with who he was. Because religion, we say this all the time, religion says change and you can join us. And Jesus says, join us and you will change. He hung out and was friends with people that the world didn't want to touch. Super inspiring. So in the Gospel of Mark, we get a couple of stories about how this interacted. Two kind of parallel stories I'm going to tell you from two different Gospels that highlight almost the same point from very different viewpoints. So in Mark 2, it says that Jesus went out again beside the sea where the whole crowd was coming to him, and they were teaching him. And then passing by, he saw Levi. Levi would, would be renamed as Matthew, which is where we would get the Gospel of Matthew. And Levi fell into the category of tax collectors. So it's like sinners, tax collectors. He was in the lowest bracket. Poor guy. And the part of the reason that they hated tax collectors is that Jewish tax collectors were seen as traitors to their own country. It would be the equivalent as if someone from the United States was a spy and they gave secrets to another country who we were at war with. You people would see them. In fact, we've got historical uh, instances of that actually happening. They're seen as traitors. People want to kill them and harm them. Levi fit into this category. Levi personally profited off the taxes he collected from his own people. So what Rome would do is they would hire a local person in the district that they oversaw, and they would say, hey, you know the people, you know the countryside, we're going to hire you, we're going to pay you a lot of money, and it's going to be an easy job. We just want you to extort your fellow people. And many of them did. They charged a higher price than what Rome demanded. So Levi wasn't, was ostracized. Once you became a tax collector from Rome, it was like the scarlet letter. 
Like you lost friends and family members, people disowned you. And so Levi's sitting in a tax collector booth because it's out in public and Jesus walks by. Passing by, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office and he said to him, hey, follow me. No conversation. Jesus doesn't interview him. Hey, are you a good Jewish boy? Hey, have you been, you know, have you paid your tithe? Like what's this whole Roman thing? He doesn't do any of that. No conversation. He's like, hey, you work for me now. And Levi's like, okay. And he got up and followed him. Then later, Levi, again, a person who is not seen as someone who is great within the society, invites Jesus over. He says, hey, I'm going to follow you, but can I throw you a dinner party? Can I invite all of my terrible tax collector friends? Jesus is like, what a wonderful idea. So while he was reclining, so Jesus is reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. Now, this must have been challenging for Jesus' disciples, too, because they're like, Jesus, are you sure about this? Like, we like it when you help the poor. We like it when you heal people. That draws a crowd. That means people get on our side. I'm not sure about the tax collectors. Do you know what they do to our people? Do you know what these sinners are? And we don't know what all of them are in terms of sinners. It's probably prostitutes. It's probably people who had murdered someone, people who had done unspeakable things. So this is like, this is the not top 10, you know, of the people. And Jesus is eating with them. He tells his disciples, he brings them along because he wants them to learn what it's like. So for there were many who were following him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees, maybe they were peeking in, they would not have been at this dinner. They would not have associated themselves. But many of the houses were open, and so you could kind of look through the windows or the courtyard. And so the scribes and Pharisees are taking notes, maybe mentally or physically, and they're peeking in on Jesus. And they're like, I can't believe, gosh, why would this guy do this? Doesn't he know who those people are? When they saw he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked this question. Why does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why does he do that? Because they could not figure it out. And the reason they couldn't figure it out is kind of in the, in the next story. But he told them this, because Jesus hears everything. He knows the hearts and minds of people. When Jesus heard them, he told them, he told them this. And this was like a, a pivotal moment, hopefully for his disciples. And it's still a pivotal moment for Christians today. And non-Christians, people who may be interested in Jesus. When Jesus heard them, he said, you know, it's not those who are well who need a doctor. You don't see a perfectly healthy person going to a doctor. He's like, you know, I feel totally fine. Just felt like I got a checkup. Like rarely people do that. If you are, great. But most people are like, yeah, my arm used to bend like this and now it doesn't bend that way anymore. Kind of need some help. People go into a doctor because they need help. And so he says, those who are sick, I didn't come to call the righteous people. I came here for people like this. You know, what doesn't get recorded, and I wish it did, do you ever wonder what the reaction of the people who were sitting there, like what did they hear? I mean, somehow they probably saw the Pharisees and the scribes on the outskirts like, oh, those are bad people in there. And Jesus says this out loud, and he basically is saying, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. I'm here for them. I mean, probably there was just, they were probably a little bit upset. He just called us sinners. We already know this, you know. But at the same time, I wonder if they go, I can't believe he came for us. I can't believe he came for us. Like, do you think it made them follow him more? Probably. So at a very different dinner party in Luke chapter 7, one of the Pharisees 
One of the Pharisees invites Jesus into his home. Very similar picture, very different outcome. So one of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. Probably one of the people. We don't know if it was the same people looking in. We don't know if this was before that necessarily. You could probably do some research and figure it out. I don't know personally. But it's interesting because Jesus both went to the people he wasn't supposed to be with, and he went to the people who apparently he was supposed to be with, meaning the religious people. So he entered the Pharisee's house, and he reclined at the table, just like he did with the sinners and tax collectors. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. And she brings an alabaster jar. Now, I don't exactly know how she got in, because she probably wouldn't have been welcomed in. And maybe Jesus is just like, hey, let her in. And the Pharisee had to deal with it because they would not have invited them into their home. So she brings an alabaster jar and much has been made about the cost associated with this jar. And I'm not going to go in that direction. But she stood behind him at his feet and she's just crying. And she begins to wash his feet with her tears. Have you ever touched a man's foot? This is not something you're like, I'm going to use the rag I use on the dogs. That's the one that gets your foot, right? That's what happens in my house anyways. Can you imagine, ladies, wiping up a stain in your house with your hair? You can't. It's not like they had like massive boots on. Like when Jesus walked in the countryside, he's stepping in dirt and manure and urine and all sorts of things. And she comes up to him and she washes his feet with her hair. She's going to carry, not in a metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense, what was on the bottom of Jesus's feet. She is that grateful. So she washes his feet with her tears. She must have been just oozing out of her. She didn't need a basin. She was so grateful that her tears were enough. And she wiped his feet with her hair and she kissed them. Ladies, I'm going to ask again, you ever kissed a man's foot? This is what I'm trying to teach you to do today. If you could go home. I'm just kidding. Don't do it. We are not doing that. If your husband or your significant other tells you that, that is not what I said. So she kisses them and anoints them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee saw this, he makes a commentary on it, invited them, saw this, he said, this man, this is such a key word right here, this two-letter word, if, if. This tells you that this Pharisee is not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is. And he sarcastically, slyly ridicules Jesus. He says, you know, if this man were a prophet, meaning if he were to know the future, if he were actually a spokesman for God, he would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Now, there are massive implications here. The first one is that why would the Pharisee invite Jesus over if he, wasn't, if he didn't think he was a prophet? Maybe he was just trying to figure out who Jesus actually was. You know, maybe he was reconnaissance. Maybe he heard Jesus had done a lot of things, and his job was just to figure that out. Number two is that there's an assumption here that prophets and people of God would not associate with a woman like this. It's ingrained in this religious person's mind and culture. He's like, we don't do that. Everyone knows that. You wouldn't even have to ask. This is repulsive. And if this guy, Jesus, is really from God, wouldn't he know that too? Did he not read the manual? Like, we all get the manual. He doesn't get it. And Jesus replied to him. And I love how Jesus is so calm in most senses. Jesus replied to him. He says, Simon, I've got something to tell you. When someone says they have something to tell you, is it good 
Not normally. Hey, I need a chat. Hey, I just want to talk to you. Hey, can we sit to have, can I have five moments? Like, I have something to say to you. And he goes, hey, teacher, go for it. And then he tells a story. And you know when Jesus tells a story, it is not going to be good for you. You're like, I'm wrong. Just tell me I'm wrong already. And so he goes, a creditor had two debtors. And this is interesting because sin is often talked about in terms of a financial transaction. A lot of different ways, the, the removal of sin, the gaining of sin, like it's often talked about as a financial transaction. A person who is in sin has a debt that they can't pay to God. And then also, as Jesus has removed people's sins, he's made, given them freedom. He has paid their debt. So Jesus is one of, the, one of the times that Jesus used financial obligations to describe sin. So a creditor has two debit, debt, debtors. One owed him 500 denarii. And the other 50. So not, not a balance of sums. One's 10 times more than the other. Since they could not pay it back, both of them, he graciously forgave them both. Now, they didn't owe the same sum, but they were forgiven in the same way. So which of them will love him more? It's not a trick question. Like even this Pharisee could figure this part out. Jesus is not talking in riddles. He makes the most obvious illusion to sin that you could possibly make. He's not going to go, oh, the guy who owed 50. And Jesus is like, no, stop. Let me tell you again. He knew the answer to this question. In fact, he answers. Simon answered, I suppose, I suppose the one he forgave more. And Jesus probably with a twinkle in his eye, he's like, I got him. I got him. He says, you've judged correctly. You've judged correctly, Simon. And then he turns to the woman. He says, hey, Simon, do you see this woman? You know, I entered your house, and you've been a terrible host. Didn't give me any cheese, like didn't take my shoes, my coat. He said, you gave me no water for my feet, which would have been the custom, because your feet are so dirty, you should come in, and you should wash yourself before you do anything else. He says, Simon, this woman is a better host than you are. It's not even her house. Like, you gave me no water for my feet, and she, she washed me with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, which would have been a custom to just smooch someone on the cheek. And she hasn't stopped kissing my feet. Not only did you not kiss the clean part of me on my face, she kissed the dirty parts of me, my feet. Yours was much easier, Simon. Hers was much more difficult. Hence, I came in. You didn't anoint my head with oil. Again, another common practice. But she has anointed my feet with perfume. Olive oil would still not have been cheap, but probably the perfume that she used to anoint Jesus' feet. There's a, there's a cost imbalance here. And then he says, therefore, and you know that therefore is there to tell you something. Therefore, I tell you her many sins. Jesus totally acknowledges you are right to call her a sinner. I'm not even upset that you have labeled her that way. You are correct. Her many sins have been forgiven, and that's why she loved, and you could probably insert the word, me, much. But the one who has forgiven little has loved little. And then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table, because apparently we discovered this is not a one-on-one -on -one conversation, it's like, dude, Jesus just crushed him in front of everybody, right? Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who's this man who can forgive sins? I mean, they're missing some of the point. They're missing his compassion. They're missing it. But Jesus makes this into a teaching moment. It is not just about sin, though it is. 
You see, they characterized someone as having that identity of a sinner for the rest of their life. It's just a label you get. It doesn't matter what you do. And Jesus is going, that's not what I see. That's not what I see at all. That's not the person that I see. That may be her past, and it may be her present, but that's not her future. And so he says, I forgive your sins. Now, a lot of stuff could have happened at the dinner table again, but it's not recorded. Because now the Pharisees would switch because what Jesus said was technically blasphemous. Only God can forgive sins. Not only was he offensive because he was a friend of sinners, he willingly associated himself with them. But now he claimed to have a power that only God can have. So now they hated him even more. Like, I guess we could get over the fact that you don't like people who are terrible. But once you started playing around with who God is and your connection with him, nah, it's not good. So let me summarize a few things real quick, and then I'm going to give you some next steps. The first one is this. Here's why friendship with Jesus matters. You know, Jesus encouraged not just provision, but association. He modeled not just compassion, but connection. Jesus didn't just hand out things to people. He said, I want to give you myself. I want to know you and your story. He didn't just say, you look like you could use some help. He said, you look like you could use a friend. Because that was the worst part. If you've ever been lonely in your life, you know exactly how this feels. You don't need money. You need a hug. You don't need someone to say, what kind of food and clothing do you need? You say, I just need someone to be there with me. And this is what Jesus did. He wasn't just a helper. He was a friend and he modeled compassion. You guys all know what the biggest knock, on, not on Christianity, but on Christians. We're judgmental. We're harsh. How do we change the narrative? I would love people in this valley to say about the churches, not just ours, is that, man, those Christians will help you. Not only will they help you, they'll take you in. They'll love you. They'll see something in you that no one else sees. In fact, society, our valley is better that those Jesus followers are here. Doesn't matter. Pick a church. We're better with them here because they connect and are compassionate to people where others won't. Number two, why sinners still seek him. You know, Jesus was compelling to sinners because he constantly showed them that salvation was available to them. You see, the religious people, not just in Jesus' day, but today, have already sentenced people who have sinned. In fact, we like throwing around the term, ah, that person's just a sinner. We like labeling way more than we like loving. And we've got to change that because Jesus modeled that. He said, my salvation is actually for you. You think you're not a candidate, but you're the prime candidate. You're the prime candidate for my salvation. I came for you. So not to put too point, to find a point on it, here are some next steps. Here's what you can do, at least in my opinion, with all of this. Number one is, if you are... If you are a Christian, remember, you were once known as a sinner yourself. 
Following Jesus, no one's born that way. Hate to break it to you. Well, one person, John, he gets passed. Everyone else, not so much. At some point in your life, you have to make a choice to follow Jesus. And when you do so, you say, forgive me. And the implication is massive. You are saying, God, I have wronged you and my family and myself and the people that I've walked into and know and personally have engaged with. I need you to forgive my debt. And the challenge with Christians is sometimes, I don't know how it happens, but at some point we think we're good people. And instead of remembering that we were once a sinner, we look at people who are sinning now, and we go, ah, I wouldn't do that. I don't think God looks favorably upon that. God's not here for those people. And if Jesus was standing right next to you, he's like, you were one of those people. I saw what you did on Thursday. You're still one of those people. (laughs) He's like, don't miss out on the fact it's not them and you. It's all of you. Don't forget, this was you. I showed compassion on you. You should do the same with someone else. Number two, see people who have sinned greatly as the potential to love God deeply. You know, the people I get along with the most are the people who have the worst past. I don't really like religious people. I'm probably known as one, to be honest, and I hate that. But the people who are in support and recovery or in counseling who like when I talk with them and they're just like, you know, I'm a piece of you-know-what and God decided to save me. I was like, I can relate to that. I too was a piece of you-know-what and maybe still am. But the challenge is here is that when God saw this woman's past sin, she goes, you know, if I forgive her, do you know what the depth of her love will be like for me? It's not a small amount. Now, this does not mean you should go out and sin a ton and then be like, I'll be so grateful afterwards. Like the Apostle Paul tells us, is like, should we go and sin more so that grace may be abound? He says, no, by no means. That's not what I'm saying. Be like going to Vegas this weekend. That's not what I'm saying. I am saying is the people that you and I interact with, the people that we say that is so much sin in that person's life, See them as having the potential to love God deeply. Because if God captures their heart, oh man, they will be such a great Christian. They will do things for God that a person, and maybe this is controversial, who is loved little won't. Because they're so grateful for what God has done. Number three, kind of related to this, is that to show compassion to and to connect with people who don't yet know and love God. If you are a Christian and all you have are Christian friends, there is a danger in turning your house into a house of Pharisees. There's a danger. When you do not hang out with people who do not know and love God, you forget your mission. Because if you only hang out with people who know and love God, then it can be like, isn't this great? that we all know and love God. And we had the danger of having in one of Jesus' parables, which we didn't get to, we're a religious person who said, God, thank you so much that I'm not like those sinners. There's a danger there. 
But when you hang out with the people who Jesus hung out with, and you love and care for them, and you see how hard it is for them without Jesus, you are reminded not only of the depth of God's love for you, but the reason that you are a Christian in the first place. You have not become a Christian to be a good person. You became a Christian because you weren't. And God saved you from that. And he saved you for something. He says, now that you're on my team, guess what you get to do? All the people who you drive by and don't like, that's now your audience. Those are the people who should become your friends. That's what he tells us. Let me pray. Father, we're very grateful for all the stuff you've done for us through Jesus Christ. We ask that you remind us who are Christians that we were once labeled as sinners ourselves by you, maybe by other Christians. Let us never forget the depth of your love for us. Your scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, not for them, for us. Lord, help us show compassion and connection and mercy to someone in need. Let us not pass by and wish people well or simply give them a handout. Let us rub shoulders and elbows and break bread with them. Let us invite them into our houses and into our lives so we can become friends and not just helpers. Lord, help us see our mission as a continuation of yours in the world. You came to seek and save the lost. Help us do the same. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thank you for being here today. One more encouragement for you. If you've never been to our coffee with us, if you want to learn more about our church, where we're going, who we are, what type of church we are, or you just want to come and have some free coffee and hang out with our staff, I would love to see you there. I'll be there talking a little bit about the vision of our church and a bunch of other things. We hope you'll come back at 12 o'clock. It's in the Family Center. You are already blessed in Christ. Have a great Sunday. Thanks for being here.